This is the Hospitality Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration only on market scale. Hospitality is a people industry. You don't want to take away that human element. You hire the kind of employee that's going to act like an owner, that's going to have that initiative. Welcome into this week's episode of the Market Scale Hospitality Podcast. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the show. We have two excellent features coming up on today's episode, which is titled Making Things Affordable and Sustainable. And we're going to see how that gets fleshed out in our two features of the day. Our first feature is titled The Traveling Family, and it features an interview conducted by MarketScale correspondent Maggie Shin with Reiner Jens. He's the president and founder of Family Travel Association. And they take a look at what families want when they travel. And it turns out that it doesn't even matter how much money a family has. Affordability is a major, major factor in what they decide to do and what vacations they decide to take. So even wealthy families want to make sure that they're getting good value for their travel and that sort of thing. So it's a really interesting conversation that Maggie Shin has, and it gets to the heart of what families are really looking for when it comes to their travel and their vacation plans. Our second feature comes to you courtesy of our correspondent Shelby Skirhawk, and it's titled Farm to Table Demand Evolves Hotel to Table. And what it really takes a look at is how hotels are really diving into this farm to table type idea by creating their own green spaces that provide for their dining rooms and for their restaurants. So they're creating these gardens that are just a few steps away from their kitchen and they're able to infuse an authentic sense of place into their cuisine and eliminate food miles, quote unquote, in an effort for sustainability. So it's a really interesting topic that hotels have really started to dive into. I'm excited to hear what she has to say about this. She's going to talk to Lauren Gray, the founder of Hospitality Digital Marketing, to talk about this trend in the hospitality industry. So like I said, it's going to be a big show that we have lined up for you today. Coming up, our first feature of the day is going to be the conversation with Reiner Jens about family travel and the trends therein. It's going to be a really interesting conversation with our correspondent, Maggie Shen. Coming up next here on the Market Scale Hospitality Podcast. And welcome to this hospitality podcast brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Maggie Shin. Travel in general has been on the rise for years, and so too has family travel. Who is today's traveling family? What specific travel behaviors are we seeing in this genre? And how can hospitality companies best market to and cater to traveling families? Here to answer these questions is Reiner Jens, president and founder of Family Travel Association. Jens brings a wealth of experience to this topic, not only personally, but professionally as well, with prior positions at CNN International, National Geographic Society, and National Geographic Kids. Welcome to the podcast, Reiner. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about family travel in general. Who is today's traveling family? Well, that's a great question because uh, you know family travel really is, in essence, a one family member traveling with another. Um, so you don't even have to have your own children to be a family traveler. So uh, an aunt or uncle can travel with a niece and nephew, and that's actually quite common. And there, there's a, a small market for that, in fact. But um, to further the point, what's important to understand is that when you look at any kind of real messaging that the media gives or, or advertising that 
uh, comes out from, from various travel companies that feature family travel, you'll usually see a white couple with two children, mm -hmm. uh, mostly a boy and a girl. I, you know, I challenge you all to actually Google family travel and look at images. And uh, you'd swear that uh, these photos were taken of the same family, just at different beaches around the world. Um, the reality is less than half of families actually are this nuclear family, mm -hmm. if you will, mom, dad with uh, you know, two children. You have families, of course, with just one child. You have families with multiple children. Uh, there are, it, it's actually over 10% of families have only a single uh, parent. So that's an actual uh, growing market, or at least one that marketers in the travel industry are starting to pay attention to. Uh, there's multi-generational travel, which means that the grandparents are traveling with their own children, and of course, their grandchildren as well. The, the impact of that growing demographic has, has clearly fueled the growth of this overall segment. So it's a very multifaceted, multidimensional, complex category. And again, it's not just a family of four that is so traditionally thought of in the media and in advertising. Uh, LGBT families are something that we pay attention to. Uh, that's certainly a growing segment and one that looks a little different uh, than a traditional family, of course. And like I said, aunts and uncles uh, traveling with nieces and nephews um, or any kind of uh, form of, of family travel or family members traveling with each other all kind of falls under this umbrella. So it's, it's a lot more complex than, than the media and advertisers make it out to be. Okay. What are some of the travel behaviors in general, take that as you will, that you're seeing with families? Yeah. And uh, this isn't going to surprise anybody, but uh, <laughs> it might surprise people that I'm actually going to acknowledge it. Uh, the reality is that a vast majority uh, of family travel is pretty simple. Families jumping into a car, yeah. visiting family and friends and staying overnight in a hotel. You know, it could be for sports, it could be for uh, you know, special occasions, obviously around the holidays, travel's very busy, particularly on the roads. That's a vast majority of uh, the type of trips and, and travel that most families make. Kids love hotels. <laughs> yeah, and look, and that's something that the travel industry in particular, like the trade media and um, you know, even advertisers, th that's almost never even acknowledged. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that this is such a big part. You know, what the industry does focus on, and, and of course, where there's money and, and, and growth, in and you asked about behaviors. Yeah. Uh, the cruise industry is absolutely uh, growing, and there are more and more families taking cruises. There are more and more people taking cruises. But the, the cruise lines are absolutely catering to this demographic. Tour operators are acknowledging the fact that families are getting more adventurous. Tour operators uh, specifically are starting to create product uh, catering to families and, and children in particular. Okay. You mentioned, Reiner, um, product-specific traveling ideas for families. Mm -hmm. What about family-targeted marketing? You know what? Uh, there has been some uh, certainly targeted messaging to this demographic uh, and segment of the audience, uh, segment of the market. And by the way, it's an important footnote. This is by far the largest segment in the entire travel industry, or at least the leisure travel industry. Oh, wow. Um, but as such, you see a very disproportionate amount of advertising going against specifically this target. I think a lot of hospitality companies and travel marketers in general tend to focus more on demographics as far as income, mm -hmm. uh, as far as gender, uh, as far as regional um, 
you know, regional markets, et cetera, they don't necessarily target families in particular. And I think that's actually a missed opportunity because parents yeah. uh, have a different set of needs and challenges than, than the rest of uh, the consumer market. So unfortunately, no, you don't see as much targeted advertising and marketing to families. You certainly see some. Uh, and where I've seen some actually great work uh, is in two areas. Uh, one is in vacation rentals. Uh, Home Away ran a campaign um, last year, I believe it was, that you know talked about people not wanting to leave their dog at home while they went on vacation, and that was clearly targeted towards families and those that uh, you know want to uh, get away and, and make sure not to leave the dog or you know, some of their pets behind. And that was very interesting. Uh, destinations have uh, targeted families. Uh, the state of New York, where I'm from has uh, has marketed, uh, whether it's skiing or, or vacationing in the lakes and all the things that New York offers, they absolutely target families. Um, Idaho had a campaign a couple of summers ago, or a couple of years ago, that focused on the fact that families only have 18 summers together, which you know pulls at the heartstrings. So you do see some, and what I've seen is actually quite creative. Uh, but um, I think there is uh, opportunity, and I would like to see more of it, because as I said, families have different needs and uh, interests than, than the, kind of the general market. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about on the, at the destination level. How are you seeing hospitality companies responding to this genre? Have you seen changes in the way hospitality companies are catering to families? Well, I think what you are seeing, uh, and I applaud this, uh, is uh, adding more um, amenities, mm-hmm. in-room dining options, or when I say dining options, in-room kitchen, uh, you know, stoves, ovens, you know, toasters, refrigerators, etc., where families can actually eat together in, in a room. I mean, it, it's emulating in a way the success of what you've seen with the vacation rental market. Mm-hmm. So yes, you've absolutely seen uh, the, the bigger hotels and, and the hospitality industry cater more towards towards that market and even offering concierge services, um, you know, where families should go for activities, for meals, uh, what is family friendly and kid appropriate, you know, that, that type of information. I've seen front desks give parents and families, you know, again, kind of easy guides uh, to cities that, again, feature family friendly attractions and destinations and, and restaurants and, and dining options. So. Um, that that is important. You know they they are recognizing that, so it's good to see the hospitality industry uh, respond. I think again, in large part because of the success of the Airbnbs and and the vacation rental market. But um, merging that merging those two, uh, I, I think, is a really positive step in development. You you mentioned self catering uh, a moment ago. Do family travelers seem to have tighter budgets, or do we all just? sometimes need to stay in so our kids don't embarrass us out in the, in the <laughs> restaurants and public places. Uh, that's certainly a factor. You know, interestingly, we do uh, quite a bit of research. Yeah. So we do an annual study of the U.S. travel, the family travel market. Yeah. And we specifically focus on these pain points that, that I think you're referencing here. Um, and year in and year out, we see that uh, the number one pain point and challenge is affordability. Yeah. Uh, and particularly, I think, if you're dealing with families with a uh, you know, larger number of children. Um, but this is not just a challenge for middle to lower income families. It surprisingly is also the number one challenge for families that are in the higher income brackets. Maybe not the highest, you know, the 150,000 plus demographic, but 
Yeah. Uh, those uh, right underneath it yeah, are, are still challenged with, with affordability. So, and, and I think that's also a value proposition. Um, you know, are they getting value for their money? So, um, yeah, the, the idea of making family travel more affordable and uh, uh, provide more value is, is absolutely something that is paramount. Um, and I'm sure that kind of transcends into other segments as well. But uh, for families in particular, it's, it's probably the most important uh, you know, aspect of, of decision-making you know, deciding on what kind of accommodations and, and what destinations they're going to travel to. Uh, are they going to use, uh, uh, are they going to fly or are they going to rent a car or are they going to drive on their own? Those, those are very important factors. What about any other trends, desires, behaviors you're seeing with family travelers, Reiner? Is there anything we haven't discussed yet? And also, what do you expect for the future here? Well, what I really do, uh, what we've seen quantitatively um, and what I I think and hope will be a trend. Uh, and again, I'm going to sound perhaps even old-fashioned here, or you know, checking on a, on reality a little bit. Is interestingly the use of travel agents. You know, in, in a world now where everything is mobile, geared towards the tech side of things, and, and clearly travel has has been uh, you know uh, part of that tech boom and and OTAs, etc., and being able to plan and book all your travels on your own. Uh, the use of travel agents, particularly when it comes to families, is really important. Uh, one of the things that we're doing at the Family Travel Association uh, is helping consumers uh, to better understand the value of using a travel agent. Um, many feel that you know the the use of an agent is going to be more expensive, and um, you know they'd rather kind of do it on their own, um, and that there's really no value. But uh, we're there to kind of help educate. The fact that you can not only save money and um, provide more value, but you can get upgrades and you can get help and assistance along the way. You know, families are particularly vulnerable to things that could go wrong. Travel agents are really there to help the consumer, but you know, parents in particular, and to help them uh, better understand options and opportunities that go beyond theme park packages and all-inclusives and, and cruises. You know, to, to better understand how they can navigate Europe or. Africa, uh, South America, you know, places like Costa Rica, what are some of the best options, you know, even here around the U.S. and Alaska and Hawaii, you know, travel agents are really well versed in that. So I do believe that you're going to see a or continue to see a resurgence of travel agents and travel advisors. And um, the more families that do engage and use those services, uh, you'll see more travelers. And, And I think that's what we all want. I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Reiner. It's been a pleasure. It's uh, been my pleasure as well. So thank you. And uh, I hope uh, some of the information is useful. And thank you everyone for listening to today's hospitality podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com industries and listen to previous episodes, search video content and more. I'm your host, Maggie Shin. See you next time.
Thank you again to our correspondent, Maggie Shen, for that look at what the family really values when it comes to their travel and their vacation plans. I thought that was a really interesting conversation. And thank you to Reiner Jens for joining the podcast today as well and providing his insight there from the Family Travel Association. Coming up next is our correspondent, Shelby Skirhawk's conversation with Lauren Gray, the founder of the Hospitality Digital Marketing Show and former restaurant owner turned consultant. And they're going to talk about this trend of hotel to table. And it's a really interesting idea where hotels are taking green spaces and utilizing them to help feed their kitchens, basically, uh, going hotel to table. So they're able to take rooftops and other areas and able to utilize them to reduce food miles and to be producing food just a few steps away from their kitchens. So it's a really interesting idea. Can't wait to learn more about this coming up next on the Market Scale Hospitality Podcast. In the pilot episode of Portlandia, an IFC show that mocks the hipster culture of Portland, Oregon, Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein want to know precisely where their meal came from and end up traveling to talk to the farmer who raised their chicken named Colin before they eat it. The waitress says, the chicken you'll be enjoying tonight, here are his papers. The chicken is a heritage breed, a woodland-raised chicken that's been fed a diet of sheep's milk, soy, and hazelnuts. Maybe it's an exaggeration, but in the past decade, the demand for hyper-local farm-to-table dining has grown from a trend to an expectation. Yes, actually, obviously, this has been a trend and going on for a while more than, as you say, as a trend. It's an actual uh, market cycle that's going through. And because of that, some maturation to the process. They've, of course, invested into their rooftops and what have you to have a sustainable variety of unique things that they can feature within their menus. It's not a sustainable everything on the menu is strictly from their garden, but they do create, of course, their pre-purchased local market stuff, you know. But then again, with their great herb gardens or unique gardens that they create, it allows them to venture into different uh, menus and recipes because of that. That's according to Lauren Gray, founder of the Hospitality Digital Marketing Show and former restaurant owner turned consultant. Now Farm to Table has gone a step further hotel-to-table, you might call it. With gardens just a few steps from their kitchen, they're infusing an authentic sense of place into their cuisine and eliminating food miles in an effort for sustainability. The Manor Vale Lodge in Vale, Colorado is perched at an 8,200-foot elevation, so a restaurant garden would typically be a challenge, but the hotel's Fitzbar and restaurant babies its four 20 by 80 vegetable gardens without chemicals or fertilizers. As a result, they grow edible flowers such as violas, pansies, and Egyptian star flowers, and include three kinds of kale. At the Suncadia Resort in Clay Ellum, Washington, garden space is no issue. The resort sits on 6,000 tranquil acres, and the resort's Hay Creek Garden supplies the portal restaurant and gas lamp grill with the fixins it needs for countless creative dishes. The ingredients grown on property include wild arugula, French beans, ninja radishes, herbs, and edible flowers. These are just many examples of restaurants and hotel chains trying to create a hyper-local garden experience there on site. Lauren Gray points to other ways that the hospitality industry and restaurants are bringing some ingenuity into its gardening. 
Um, I have one client that has a wonderful uh, hydroponics garden, which is more about seasons and, and herbs and unique small quantity use uh, pro, uh, produce, things that are used to augment flavors and tastes, not, you know, making bowls of salad, let's say, uh, that they're growing some very unique and great localization of produce that they can feature in the flavorings of their of their menu selection creations um, where they're not all in where they're saying everything about their menu is farm to table but they're referring to the unique eclectic value of the localization of the menu as they offer it but lauren it seems to me that hydroponics is a much more involved process and a little more uh hands-on than just a community garden or rooftop garden that uh, that is kind of accessible and, and open to the public. Yes, I mean that's the, the the neat part about hydroponics is is that you can get a massive amount of production out of a very small space. the The negative about hydroponics is, is that you need a persistent relationship with what you're doing. <laughs> um, it's not a uh, look at my garden, grow from a distance, keep it weeded and clean. It's uh, it's a matter of um, you have to build this into your kitchen scheduling. It occupies legitimately cost-effective space that you, you know, this is sitting somewhere in your operations. And as such, it has to have its own ability to be controlled, monitored, maintained. Um, you know, these are, these are, these go into the realm of cuisine choices. Like, do you create your own charcuterie deck, you know, a locker? Do you, do you create your own uh, uh, buildable spaces from scratch or do you buy pre-purchased things? Do you make your own breads? These are choices that, you know, every restaurant has as a feature to their menu component to it. And and unfortunately, well, fortunately, hydroponics or that aspect of creating your own uh, herb base or unique uh, vegetable garden uh, is in that same qualifier of like how much space can I really dedicate? What can I really produce from that? I mean, you start creating some towers and so forth, you get great yield, but it's still, again, occupying valuable kitchen space somewhere. But what about the sheer aesthetics of it? I mean, with a rooftop garden, you can see it from afar and you get this ambiance and this this kind of urban design. But with a hydroponics facility, I mean, that's not something you want people just wandering through taking a look at, right? <laughs> It's not, but this is where the world of social goes well. I mean, the neat part about this is, is that social as a, as a medium of opportunity for communication allows for behind the scenes things. People truly enjoy that. How is my food being made? I mean, some of the most successful social campaigns is literally, you know, uh, the di dinner meal of the day being prepared by the chef as an example of what to expect if you came in for dinner that evening. And, and then for them to say, I only have 20 plate covers uh, tonight, so make your reservations early and then see the phone light up or see the, you know, the booking uh, uh, software, you know, fill up. Um, same too with the hydroponics, same too with any efforts that are above and beyond the standard, this is my kitchen, you know, chef's table kind of mentality where you get to show off the, the things that you're doing to make your place unique. So uh, yeah, the hydroponics are not uh, sexy <laughs> in that sense, but, but by, by the same token, it's fun to be able to show that added extra thing that you're doing compared to cracking open a box that got delivered by a refrigerated truck in the back of your, of your restaurant. But for the local producers and farmers, this farm-to-table demand is having an interesting effect on its product selection or the yield that it's creating for its customers. Ironically, because of the demand cycle to the local farmers, 
the farmers are changing their product crops because of what they're being asked to produce rather than what they were producing and then selling. Used to be uh, restaurants wishing to be farm to table would go to their local providers and see what was being produced locally and then uh, cultivate the relationship with what they could produce for menu selections and what have you because of the featureability of the local cuisine. Um, but now local producers now having more people demanding from them this production are beginning to yield their crops, so to speak. They're beginning to realize that it might be more advantageous for them to change their product uh, production into different categories of things that they can sell at a higher value than what they were producing before. Uh, example being, you know, before they used to have locally grown potatoes. Well, based on the cost factor and yieldability of value, uh, they're now into arugula for the same square footage space they used to be doing uh, because there's a higher yield value for them uh, to, to market for it. So it raises the question, is the menus being produced by the local restaurants tailored more to the, what was local cuisine and local production, or is it being tailored to what's being offered in the market? Uh, so that's a bit of a maturation to the relationship within the market. But the producers of the local product versus the demand of the local product, uh, the the tail wag wagging the dog potentially, because that is a new metric to that. That's a, that's a maturation of the relationship. You know, so it, it, it turns into this, you know, the, the restaurant asking for potatoes and they're saying, yeah, we don't do that anymore. Farmers are changing their products. Farms are changing their location. How can the hospitality industry take advantage of all of these changes happening widespread? This is a great opportunity for independents to take a leg up into their market space because chains have to move the mountain for everything. And uh, they have the added advantage of buying an entire farm spread. Uh, but by the same token, they have the same issues that anything that we see with food qualities and recalls and so forth is that the larger the scale, the larger the potential issues um, where localization and independent restaurants and so forth, um, depending upon how much they do themselves versus how much they buy locally, they have a much greater control over what they can purchase. Um, ironically, and this is a discussion we've actually been having recently, is with all these changes in people's perception as to knowing where their food comes from or being able to validate where the food comes from so that when these nationally known, hey, don't buy this or don't buy this because it's tainted with this or this, um, you know, being able to go into a restaurant and say, we don't have to worry about that. We can have that product in our, our restaurant because it didn't, one, come from anywhere other than where we know it did. And two, it wasn't from where they said it was. And three, we know exactly how it was raised because we mandated how it was to be raised. Those are great additives. So there's conversations now that are coming up. It's like, these things that constantly get recalled or get questioned about the potentiality of recall are now turning into the products of interest for lo for the restaurants to buy locally. Um, you know, and I'm not trying to point at you know lettuce this versus lettuce that, but we all know where these recalls come from. And being able to, and this even goes into the meat market of of bu buying sustainable local um, uh, meats and meat products. There, there local butcheries coming back in a way um, because you knowing it came from there or knowing how it was produced is almost as valuable as being able to say that you're supporting local businesses by you know doing you know farm to table products. So I see this as something as another addition to the maturation of that where being able to pick those products that you know have this propensity to be possibly recalled and then buying them in a way that's sustainable, local and identifiable Put your leg up because, you know, the local brand restaurant might have to close down or remove it off their menu because they bought large and national and they can't validate it. Meanwhile, you can validate and keep it down on your menu. For MarketScale Hospitality, I'm Shelby Skirhawk.
Thank you to Shelby Skirhawk and Deloren Gray for that look at the hotel to table trend. Really fascinating stuff how hotels are using that space to be able to produce food just steps away from their kitchens. It's a really interesting idea, and I really appreciate that further look into that trend. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for on this week's episode of the Market Scale Hospitality Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode of making things affordable and sustainable. I really enjoyed getting to bring it to you and getting to uh, help present this information today. Again, if you like this content, there's more just like it over at marketscale.com. If you click on the industry page, you can then scroll down to hospitality. Give that a click. We have a lot more written content as well as podcasts just like this one there for you to consume there on that website. We also cover 14 industries total at MarketScale. And so let's say that you are in the hospitality industry, but you're also interested in how ProAV can be integrated into hotel spaces or restaurants or something along those lines to really enhance the customer experience. You can go browse around on the ProAV page as well. There we have more information and more written content as well as podcasts just like this on the ProAV industry as well. So you can go search around there and maybe find some more information on topics that are also related to what you are doing in the hospitality industry. So we're aiming to cover all different bases of multiple different industries. So you'll certainly find more there as well uh, that you can consume uh, content-wise. We'll be back in the very near future with another episode of the Market Scale Hospitality Podcast. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for listening. (music) 